You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today, we're lucky enough to speak with a sign of Bay Street, with experience as a lawyer and the president of a hedge fund company, and now a hedge fund platform that provides infrastructure to fledgling as well as very large hedge fund managers located in Canada and elsewhere. We also feature one of his emerging managers in the area of life settlements, an asset class that is decades old in the institutional realm and continuing to gain more acceptance in high net worth portfolios. We talk about what it takes to launch a fund, ways to ameliorate the cost and time involved, and what this area of life settlements can do for investor portfolios. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. Today is Tuesday, May 5th, and I'm James Barron with CASA, and this is Alternative Thinking. Today we have Gary Ostowich with Spartan Fund Management and John Norman with Parasen Life Settlements. Uh, we'll start with self-introductions. Let me start with you, Gary. Yeah, thanks, James, and thanks for having me on today. I look forward to the discussion. Um, you know, I, I entered the alternative area through my legal career. So I was a lawyer for around 15 years downtown. Mm-hmm. Practiced in the area of derivatives, hedge funds, was involved in a number of businesses relating to hedge funds. And then in 2003, I left, left law, formed AMA, along with uh, Jim McGovern, David Jarvis, and entered the business world for a full-time basis. You know, and I'm, I'm fairly, I became fairly mm-hmm. well-versed in the alternative area, given my background. I was also, and remain, a pretty significant investor in alternative strategies. Cool. Let me tell, uh, tell us about Spartan Fund Management. What, what exactly do you guys do there? Yeah, you know, we're an alternative asset manager that focuses in on niche strategies. Um, And often these niche Mm -hmm. strategies are capacity constrained, but not often, but not always. And we access these strategies one of two ways. One, um, we come across an investment team um, like John Norman, who actually... um, we find a strategy really attractive. They join us as uh, as employees and a pooled fund is set up um, to house that strategy. The other way we access strategies mm-hmm. are with existing registrants who may not have any presence in Canada, um, who may need our assistance. And so we will set up a pooled fund once again, and we'll sub-advise to that group. So you know what, our strategies, we have 12 on the platform within our business right now. And uh, roughly about 1.1 billion across those strategies, you know, in about 50% of our assets are high net worth family office. The other 50% is through the advisor channel. So really what we're focused on, niche strategies, we believe our philosophy is, which a lot of academic research out there, smaller managers tend to have outsized returns and and niche managers Mm -hmm. also can find some really interesting things. So that's really what Spartan's about is to, is to bring those strategies to the marketplace. So what would Nishi be analogous to? Is it the capacity constraints or just different or uh, ones that people really haven't seen yet? Or what, how would you define Nishi? Yeah, I, I think it is. It, it, it often is capacity constrained because um, by definition, mm-hmm. somebody has found something. And for, for some reason, it, it could be just because of the liquidity in the marketplace there could be a, um, a structural problem with getting too large uh, in that investment, mm. that that is therefore capacity constrained and therefore I'd call it niche. But you could also have, you know, we recently just brought on board um, Fork. Now, 
Fort is not a small manager. Fort is a mm-hmm. six, $6 billion quantitative hedge fund, but it's somewhat niche. Like they're, they're pure quant. They're operating in four different areas. So you can have what I consider niche um, large managers, but for the most part, they're often smaller managers. I'd call it sub a billion and sometimes, you know, sub sub 200 million in terms of it, of those strategies that they're able to implement. And, and part of when we talk to people and, you know, I typically meet with um, an investment team, two of them a month and, and two on the phone now a month. Wow. And, and you're trying to understand, you know, what is that edge? What do they have? And hopefully they have a track record. Like we'll come across private investors that have been investing for 20 years and have some phenomenal returns. Mm-hmm. And you'll find out, okay, the strategy only can do 50 million. And, but you know what? 50 million is okay. Yeah, not exactly you know scalable. What? Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? You can make a lot of money on 50 million if you're producing a strong return. Yeah. So um, yeah. So I would say it can, it, it can be capacity constrained, but it also, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be capacity constrained. That's cool. And I guess if you have an employee, it's fairly cut and dry. I mean, I'm sure the economics are more entrepreneurial, but they come onto your platform. They, uh, you're on, they're on your registration with the securities commissions and such. And uh, so you, then you kind of, I guess, amalgamate all the back office and middle office functions, maybe like trading and, and fund admin. Um, is there anything else you do for them there? And then what do you do for, for a larger shop like Fort with billions? Um, is it regulations? Are you selling for them? Or how, how does that usually pan out? Like what we usually do, and we have a number of them that are like Fort. Um, so it's an existing registrant. So why does an existing registrant need mm-hmm. us? Well, the existing registrant may be located outside Canada. They may already have, or maybe they need a Canadian feeder fund. So if you have a Canadian feeder okay. fund, you know, you've got now you got to, you got to set up a pooled fund. Somebody has to have a domestic IFM registration, PM registration, probably an EMD registration to raise money. Somebody's got to deal with the operations of it. Somebody has to make the investment decisions for that feeder fund to go into the offshore. So it's everything, you know, and, and I don't look at like uh, in terms of the word platform, I don't look at us that different from a mutual fund, you know, call it CI who has, mm. you know, literally tens of hundreds of mm-hmm. strategies. I think the only difference like with us it's very, if an investment team was to leave, it's not as easy for us to say, oh, here's another investment team that's just as good as that investment team that was focused in on SPAC arbitrage. You know, they're not, a, you know, they're more difficult to source it. So it's, I, I find it, we're an asset management shop. So we have distribution, we have operations, we have mm-hmm. investment decisions. And those investment decisions are being made up by dedicated teams, dedicated registrants that are employees of Spartan or sub-advisors that are, uh, that are, you know, making the, uh, the decisions with respect to that pool of money. Right. Oh yeah, actually we had uh, a couple of CI units on one of our podcasts earlier and uh, you know, one's in Melbourne, Australia and the other one's here. Uh, they have other, if you look on their wall when they had that office, they have all the, all the logos. So yeah, it's like, uh, I wouldn't say like, I don't know if you call it a mini CI, but it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting way to, uh, to compare, that's pretty cool. Uh, and then, how much? I got one more question on this. Side. So, how much of that is is liquid strategy stuff? That um, I don't know if you have any liquid alts, uh, specifically funds, and how much would be illiquid, which I gather, and we'll get to John in a sec, is, is what his is because you're kind of buying it as a sort of a slate finance thing and, and uh, have to hold it to maturity. Yeah, you know, it, it's roughly 50 50 in terms of liquid versus non liquid. Um, we don't currently have. Uh, we're, we're not made use of the liquid alt uh, prospectus um, structure yet. 
we do have two prospectus offered mutual funds. Like, like the challenge for the liquid alts, you know, the, the challenge for the liquid alts really is one of, and it's the same thing with the mutual fund, which is upfront costs to put that together or more. And the ongoing costs, like the ongoing costs for a liquid alt of your service providers, not your fees, but your service providers, you know, call it 120 to 150,000 a year at least. And so you've got cool. to say, okay, so I've got to have, I better get up to 20 to $30 million very quickly um, to make use of that. But listen, I'm in favor, like I, I think the liquid alt strategy is is great in terms of it. If you have for distribution, and if you can launch at a size that'll that'll make sense for it. And, and of course, even with our liquid versus non-liquid, within our liquid bucket, there's uh, you know strategies such as merger arb that really mm -hmm. wouldn't fit within the liquid alt strategy. But uh, yeah, that's sort of our 50-50 um, in terms of liquid versus non-liquid. No, that's great. Thanks, Gary. And uh, how about you, John? Well, what are you doing now with uh, Parasen and uh, your strategy, and how how did this come about? This came about in. Uh about 10 years ago when a former colleague of mine um, approached me with the idea of uh, setting up something for in life settlements. And uh, <clears throat> we uh, brought together two other fellows. So the four of us uh, worked on this project for a couple of years and then uh, uh, took the idea to Gary and uh, pitched it to him. And it was a fit, obviously. Mm. So we set up our first fund in 2013 at Spartan, the Paris and Life Settlement Fund, um, which uh, we've fully invested in the interim and, and then launched a, a second fund uh, about uh, a year and a half ago. So we will continue to, uh, once, once we deploy assets, uh, come back and uh, raise a, raise a additional funds through the course of time. So yeah, maybe we should uh, back the truck up a bit. So what exactly is a life settle? I've, I've looked into this over the past many years and, and I guess it's, it, well, I'll just say the elephant in the room is it's like maybe like viaticals where people have life insurance contracts or and then there, there was some stuff going on earlier where people were originating contracts and I don't know how that worked out. But um, what's, what's, what's the, say the tone of the market now with that and, and how are these these uh, contracts typically structured, and then uh, maybe on the uh, the last bit, how is you, how is your fund structured? Is it more of a, a continuous offering liquid one, or is it is it like a closed end fund? Well, very simply, a life settlement is the purchase of an in force insurance policy from a senior, mm -hmm. uh, whereby the purchaser becomes the owner and beneficiary of the policy. Uh, and then maintains the premiums, and on the death of the insured person, which is usually the same as the original seller, uh, we will then collect the death benefit and ultimately distribute those proceeds back to our investors. Mm -hmm. uh, this means that our funds, which uh, have a term of 10 years, uh, will ultimately, after, um, after being fully invested, essentially run off so that at the end of the year, uh, the end of the 10 years, everything is, uh, is distributed um, and, and people have, uh, have received all their funds back. Uh, the difference with viaticals is that those instruments tend to focus, uh, and they're not, very, they're not really in use much anymore, mm -hmm. uh, tend to focus on the terminally ill. 
So th- right. these are life insurance policies, uh, generally younger people. They became popular in the late 80s around uh, the AIDS epidemic, uh, oh, yeah. whereby uh, people needing expensive healthcare treatments at the time could sell their policies and uh, have some additional cash for that. Uh, we have uh, stayed strictly within the life settlement marketplace or the senior life settlement marketplace uh, so that we're not exposing uh, in our investments to a single health impairment. Rather, we're looking at a much broader segment of the population in terms of uh, impairments, age, um, uh, and general general health and wealth could you pay more than what you would get from the uh from the from the death benefit and like so how and how does the how do you use life expectancy and how these morbidity tables or mortality tables are might be changing over the years how, how does how does that affect your, your investment process well addressing it it is possible and in fact one of the risks in owning a life settlement is that you have to fund the premiums until the death of the insured mm-hmm. so if the insured lives appreciably longer than uh, the original life expectancy, then uh, you, you run the risk of, of having to put more money into the policy, the purchase price and premiums, than you would get back from the death benefit alone. So that is a fundamental risk where a manager may look to uh, sell a, a policy at a steep discount um, or, or surrender that policy or lapse it. Uh, whereby you get no value, which is obviously the least, uh, the least favorable alternative. Yeah. The fundamental underpinning of a life settlement's value is the life expectancy of the insured person. So this is calculated by uh, actuaries, uh, medical underwriters, who will assess the health of an individual uh, and through a debit and credit system ultimately arrive at a mortality factor. Uh, Mm. Essentially, that is your relative health compared to the general population. Um, From this number, we can derive a life expectancy. The life expectancies will, of course, not be perfectly accurate. They are uh, essentially a series of of probabilities over time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's important that uh, through the ownership of a policy that uh, that uh, we re-underwrite uh, these lives every few years. So we have a gauge as to how people are tracking relative to their original mm. life expectancy. But it is a very uh, sophisticated system that is difficult to uh, pin down with, with perfectly accurate information. There's always a considerable amount of, of unknown when going into a, a policy acquisition. Well, I, yeah, I guess similarly when an insurance company is issuing a policy, that person might die the next day or they could live to 104. Yeah, I guess that's, uh, that's interesting. Yes. How about, how about for you, from your side, Gary, uh, are investors, do investors seek this type of investment that's, that's novel and, and, and fairly illiquid or is it something that they uh, how do they come across it, uh, and how do you, uh, what what kind of appeals to them in this this type of investment? You know, I think once people um, like, I think it's it's very appealing to. Quite frankly, it's appealing to everybody. 
unfortunately, it really can only be offered to high net worth, ultra high net worth. Like institutions right. have been doing this, have been involved in this asset class for years, if not decades. You know, one of the biggest investors in that class is Berkshire Hathaway. And, and I mm. think like we ran, we ran like Spartan, my partner and I, Brent Challen and I ran across this asset class in more depth about two years before uh, we met up with John and his investment team. And you know what? I love the asset class. It, it's, it, and, it, and obviously because of its liquidity issues and, it, and it's different than private equity, right? Because, you know, halfway through a 10 year, like whether it's year five, six or whatever, you're, you're likely going to get your principal back and the rest is sort of your return. And it's, it's a fantastic, you mm. know, think of the correlation. There isn't a correlation to anything. And so if you, if you have a, a strong actuarial team in, so, you know, it's, it's appealing. We find it's appealing to a broad audience. And once they understand it, now, of course, there are some initial reactions. Oh, my goodness, you're taking advantage of somebody, somebody dying. And, and I think, yeah, and John can, can be much more uh, lucid than I can on this, on this point or, or, to the, uh, or accurate on it, which is, you know, think about myself, if I'm paying life insurance, my mom's life for 40 years, she's 85, and now I just lost my job through COVID and I can't afford the premium payments anymore uh, in that policy. What are my options? I don't have an option. The, uh, the policy will lapse. Yeah. I'll get a small amount of cash back. If I'm in the United States, I'm likely going to be able to say to my broker, insurance broker, can you find a price for this policy? And if it's a million dollar policy, maybe it's worth $300,000 to me. And so, you know what? I think once wow. people understand that this isn't, this is something that can help people. Because you can imagine right now in this environment, the number of people that are going to be defaulting on insurance in terms of it, even though they paid into it for decades. So, you know what, James, it, it's a... I find it, it's very attractive. People need to position it properly in the portfolio because it's an illiquid asset. As John said, it's going to run off over a period of time. But the, the benefits mm -hmm. of correlation, like the investors that are in it, some investors knew about it already uh, because they, they, you know, they understand what life settlements. Others had to be educated on it. But I, for the most part, it's, very, it's been very attractive. And I think our feedback from it is, can it, can it be brought into a broader use within the advisor channel? And, and that's the uh, and that's the thing that uh, you know we sort of have been working on with the, the last iteration, the last raise on it. But yeah, for the most part, I think it's it's a very attractive asset class. Just to add to that, uh, it's it's quite striking when looking at uh, the lapse rates uh, over time. Uh, in other words, for uh, various ages, and what we see is while you tend to get a declining lapse rate. Uh, f from you know relatively young ages, say thirty and forty, where it may be seven or eight uh, percent, it will decline to just a few percent um, for someone in his eighties or nineties. Uh, hmm. But what we see is two significant blips in lapse rates. Uh, one occurring in the mid sixties. Uh, in other words, when people are evaluating their expenses going into retirement and determining what uh, what expenses they're going to carry with them uh, and what to jettison. And often in insurance is uh, one that's quick to go. Uh, yeah, the second is it only the income replacement? Do they? 
no, it's just it's just a big burden in mm -hmm. terms of the uh, the premium cost, and uh, if if the insurance isn't isn't uh, needed in a, in a significant way, then there's almost no point in, in maintaining it. Um, the other the other blip we see is in the early '80s when people are presumably facing various healthcare related expenses, whether that's assisted living or uh, straight medical costs in the case of uh, people living in the U.S., um, where people just faced with uh, tough financial decisions will abandon their policies in order to save some, save some cash. So the life settlement market does fill this void for, for those two groups in particular who uh, are faced with essentially walking away from an asset that they've been paying into for 20, 30, or more years. Essentially, the U.S. and Canada differ by the degree of um, regulation. Uh, the U.S. has the advantage of a Supreme Court ruling about 100 years ago that established well, insurance and therefore life settlements as an asset. And as a result, people are allowed to uh, sell an asset. In Canada, we do not have that legal precedent. And so as a result, there was not the development of the market here like we now see in the U.S., which has become much more sophisticated and robust as increasingly large players enter the market and as governments look to regulate the industry essentially to to protect uh, elderly people from getting ripped off by unscrupulous uh, mm -hmm. um, sales uh, salespeople so the in in the United States about 47 of the states are fully regulated which means that if an individual chooses to sell his or her policy um, then they must go through a, a regulated entity referred to as a provider mm. and who will provide all the um, uh, important disclosures associated with who's getting paid what, what the terms of the contract entail, uh, and any, uh, any legal protections that they may have. Canada doesn't have any of this. Uh, and as a result, the insurance companies, which generally speaking don't like the idea of life settlements to begin with, um, have been quite aggressive here in promoting or, or rather in dissuading people from participating, including going as far as uh, to lobby various provincial governments to outlaw um, life settlements altogether. Currently, as we stand in Canada, there is uh, there are four provinces which allow this transaction. Uh, they include Saskatchewan, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick. Nova Scotia is going uh, through the process of possibly banning these transactions, and uh, which is, of course, very unfortunate for people living mm. there because they no longer have that avenue to uh, monetize an otherwise illiquid asset. Uh, the U.S., in comparison, has been um, much more open to this process, and uh, despite insurance companies not being overly keen on uh, 
seeing lapse rates decline, uh, they have uh, complied with this and made the system much more efficient. So they, they recognize uh, when transactions are, are taking place, which of course are all disclosed through the uh, uh, change of ownership and beneficiary documents. Um, and uh, as a result, the system is much smoother there. And the supply of policies is much greater. And James, to state the obvious, like you have insurance companies up here who who lobby against it, yet the subsidiaries of those same insurance companies in the US have to participate. Like there's really, that needs to change. Like Canada needs to open up on this side in terms of it. Like that's, I really believe it needs to. It is quite egregious to think that mm. Uh, you can collect these premium payments for such a long time and then force people to either walk away with a relatively small surrender value or no value all, at all in the case of a lapse. In, uh, I think my first exposure to this officially was in 2005 and there was someone who um, uh, sounded like you, John. He gave the absolute worst presentation for Life Settles. And it was uh, <laughs> it was basically... In the states, uh, especially, and they were actually, and this was before, of course, 08, um, but it's similar. It sounds similar to CDOs, and they were actually originating policies. They go to a seventy, what, whatever year old, seventy one, and say, okay, we can get a policy on you, and we can, if you sign here, we can get you whatever it's three hundred grand, and the policy is going to be X dollars or whatever the thing is, and we'll take care of everything. We'll just do all, with all the medicals, and if you're through, then that. But that seemed kind of I. I I saw in that some some kind of moral hazard of of going and setting these things up, and it doesn't sound like that's the stuff you're doing here. Does that stuff still happen, or did that happen? Because it just seemed kind of weird uh, how that was uh, coming about. It sounded like later on seemed a lot like the CDO market, so to speak. Ah, yes, you're referring to the uh, STOLI market. STOLI oh, is an acronym. <laughs> STOLI is an acronym for Stranger Originated Life Insurance. And indeed, huh. you're correct. In the sort of mid 2000s to around 2009 or 10, um, there mm -hmm. were billions of dollars of policies originated, uh, often under questionable, if not outright fraudulent, um, uh, circumstances. So, mm -hmm. as you just described there, James, the the idea of uh, a salesperson going to um, someone in his seventies or eighties and selling a policy, usually of of uh, a large face value, five ten million, yeah. Yeah. and then paying that person almost on the spot, or sometimes waiting two or three years. Right. Um, the suicide clause in that, yeah. yes. And then those policies were getting sold off. Uh, they often found their way into some of the European investment banks who in turn, by bundling those policies together, uh, could create derivative instruments around them. Oh my God. <laughs> um, this, 2008 to 2012 or so, saw a significant change in a variety of things to do with this industry, um, but perhaps most significantly was the regulatory infrastructure. States not only implemented uh, dis discrete life settlement laws, but they mm. also explicitly banned the Stoli transaction. 
I should just uh, point out here that in Canada, the term STOLI, when used by the insurance companies, um, is often called stranger-owned life insurance, which is fundamentally perfectly fine. If an individual legally yeah. buys an asset from another individual, uh, that, uh, that is fine, assuming, assuming that it's uh, legal in the, in the jurisdiction where the transaction takes place. Mm -hmm. um, but Stoli has been uh, fully banned in uh, in the U.S. Oh, okay. I can see how this change of one word makes the uh, yes an entirely different thing seem kind of a gun toward. Oh, that's interesting. So, how about are these always um, like term draw hundred or whole life or, or something? Or cause I guess you can't use a term ten because if someone's eighty five and they live past ninety five, then the, the policy is gone. You, you you have to convert these things, or how does that work from that side? Or is what types of policies do you typically look at? We focus only on permanent life insurance. Um, within that category, we do include uh, term to one hundred policies. Frequently, a term to one hundred policy is uh, actually you know a term to one hundred and fifteen or one hundred and twenty. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so it's more of a, yeah. <laughs> it's even better. Um, but you do run a risk on policies that uh, term out that uh, they will end with no value. Uh, so you will have oh. paid in if, if you know somebody lives to 105 or 110. If that's where the term out point is, then then oh. you are you have no longer have any value left in that policy. Uh, so those those policies get priced accordingly. Um, mm -hmm. They often get traded. Uh, as they approach that terminal point, and uh, investors that are prepared to take on the increasing risk can do so at that time. But uh, the primary focus of the industry is the is the permanent insurance market, so that you avoid that turnout mm -hmm. dynamic. So, with the the COVID crisis, um, I guess are the numbers like so well right now relatively small. That it may not affect the the life settles market, or is there maybe a bit more correlation? I don't know. I guess or anti correlation, because markets have been in a bit of a up and down, a lot of volatility. Um, but I imagine the life settles is kind of just just plugging along. Or how, how how do you think it performs in all these different markets that we've seen? Well, theoretically, COVID affects the senior population uh, more drastically than the rest of the population. Okay. Uh, it hasn't, it, from our perspective, hasn't really transferred to an increased mortality rate in our portfolios. Mm -hmm. Now, that's probably in large part because our portfolios don't represent the general prop population. Um, they are more, uh, more directed to uh, generally wealthier and better educated people, which have a better who have a better chance of survival in something like COVID. Um, so right. there is uh, not the uh, not the significant increase in, in mortality rates. And we don't really expect to see a significant increase in mortality rates. Um, mm -hmm. We've seen some, uh, some small blips, but that uh, may just be coincidental timing as opposed to COVID specifically. Right. So what would you say to investors um, that are looking at this and uh, 
and thinking, okay, what's what's my main takeaway from this about life settles and maybe where the any any sort of trends or where it's going. Uh, and it's perfectly fine if it's just keep you know still chugging along. But I just want to see if there's anything that that you're telling investors now that are looking at it. The most important thing for an investor going into a life settlement uh, product is really understanding that this does not function like a traditional um, liquid mutual fund. This is mm -hmm. something where you have to make a commitment for a significant period of time, uh, in our case, 10 years. There, I should just as an aside say that there are a number of funds that are open-ended and in, in good markets, uh, good capital markets generally, that model can work. But where all of a sudden there are, there's a large demand to raise cash, that can put a lot of pressure on funds with the open-ended structure. Uh, yeah. So it's important yeah. as an investor to, to understand that dynamic and to be safest in the asset class uh, to commit to a fairly lengthy uh, investment horizon. Um, that and the, the, the nature of the instrument itself is one whereby uh, there's a constant requirement for cash to fund the premiums uh, until, until the death of the insured. So right. cash flows go in, uh, uh, in different directions than what you might find in more traditional instruments. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Wow. Uh, how about from your side, Gary? Yeah, you know, um, I think like in terms of um, like a couple of points, one is, uh, although there is this time span of 10 years, a lot of investors are in the private equity markets, which those mm -hmm. funds tend to be structured seven to 10 years. And, and often in those type of funds, you're not getting a payment till the end of, of, of seven years. And so in this type of fund, it's oh, interesting yeah. because although you, you say, oh, it, it's a 10-year term, there are payments that are being received throughout the term, which is quite different than, than many private equity ones. And I think the other thing that people need to do, so, so I think that's one thing. So I think positioning within a portfolio, if you have an e-liquid basket within your portfolio, which many high net worth, mm -hmm. ultra high net worth investors do, you, you think of, mm -hmm. you, you got to think hard. Why wouldn't you have a little slice in there? And I think the other thing is take a look at the offerings because I, we don't like when we looked at this offering and when speaking with, with John and, and the group, like it's not the type of offering, for instance, that you'd have a performance fee on. Like I think a performance fee, people mm. can take it, you know, a lot of, uh, things can happen on a performance fee when valuating policy. So once again, the, the funds that um, that John's responsible for, his investment team and that we've launched are just management fee funds. Because you know what, it, it's, it's non-redeemability, the valuation of these policies, there's obviously, um, there's a process, but in terms of it's never an exact science. So I don't think it's one that a performance fee probably makes sense either on it. So, but, you know, I think it's something that, like I said much earlier, is that an ultra high net worth investor, high net worth investor, um, once they think about, okay, I'm going to put this money aside for a period of time, it makes a lot of sense within a portfolio. Mm -hmm. Wow. This has been great. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks, Gary. Thanks, John. Um, we definitely want to get you guys back in another podcast uh, again sometime soon, but uh, this has been really illuminating on this market. Like I say, I've been looking at it for like the last 15 years, but I think this is the most in-depth talk I've ever had on it. So uh, <laughs> thanks again, guys. Okay. Well, You're thank welcome. you, James. It's a pleasure.